Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the Double Edge Devil Bill. This week, Penelope Cruz is our Volver Counselor. week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani, and Adam, I got this thing stuck on my neck right before we started. I just gotta get it off. I think you can leave the show for now. And I am Adam Thomas, and I am now a one-man operation. No, I'm fine. I got a couple fingers coming off, but I'm good. It's good. Yeah, good. Good. See you later, uh, buddy. <sighs> oh. Whew. Thank God. Well, welcome, everybody, to the Double-Edged Devil Bill, where if you're new, uh, every week Adam and I uh, cover a good and a bad feature that we picked at the end of the previous episode uh, based around a topic. And, uh, you know, this week's particular topic is uh, Miss Penelope Cruz, which was done in honor of um, she at the time of this recording, is currently at least just nominated for an Oscar. Um, this was planned as an episode to originally come out, like, right before the Oscars. We had some scheduling issues, so this will come out after the actual Oscars have happened. So either she's pulled a surprise win, or, as I've predicted, she has lost to Jessica Chastain, who I would not want to win over her, but I think it's more likely. Right. Yeah, it's my fault we're a little late. I was in the process of moving and all that stuff, so sorry, folks. No worries. No worries, Adam. Of course, because we're here now to talk about Miss Penelope Cruz, uh, who, you know, we like doing something Oscar-related around when the Oscars actually come out, and we decided this is the first year where it's just like, let's just talk about a specific nominee. And Penelope Cruz feels like an interesting one, especially considering we haven't done, you know, that many actresses who primarily work in foreign language films. Uh, And I would argue with Penelope Cruz, what's interesting is she's kind of like the textbook example to me of an actor who works so wonderfully in, like, movies made in her, like, native language, you actually know how to utilize her, versus uh, American films, where often uh, she's very much tossed off to the side, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, I'd say that's absolutely the case. I mean, I can think of, you know, maybe a couple English-language films that she really shines in, but for the most part, yeah, if you want to see, you know, sort of what Penelope Cruz can offer and the talent she actually has, yeah, if you watch her native films in her native language, man. It's like a completely different actor, truly. But uh, where do you remember at least first seeing her, Adam? Where did it really like click for you in terms of like her as like a star, or a really good talent? I want to say the first time I saw her was probably Vanilla Sky, and then that movie itself had me go back and and watch the original, and then sort of delve more into her career, especially a lot of the stuff with uh, you know Pedro Almodovar and, and things like that. But uh, yeah, it's probably Vanilla Sky. Um, and then I probably, I mean, it's kind of giving away something for later, but I probably realized like, oh, she's a kind of going to be a big star. Uh, believe it or not, it was because of Blow. Because Blow was just such a huge movie and the marketing campaign behind it and everything. And she was featured right on the cover and right in all the advertisement stuff. So I'm like, oh, she's going to be huge. That was, I was going to say, the first movie at least I remember seeing her in was Blow. Blow was sort of like a weird movie where it kind of was my first 
quote unquote like adult Oscar-y movie where I was just like, oh, this is about like a real life person. And this is the story about drugs and like betrayal and all this other stuff. And you you may have hinted that it might come up later, so we'll put a pin in that necessarily. But she from there would be in a bunch of like American movies that, as you mentioned, didn't really utilize her that well. Like we covered Sahara on the show, classic example of her not being yep. utilized that well in the American movie. Or even like it's weird where she's the first um, actress of Spanish like lineage to be nominated for Best Actress. Um, and it's unfortunate that her only win as of yet is for uh, Vicky Cristina Barcelona. Not because she's bad in that movie, but uh, because I'm maybe not as huge on that movie. Probably partially because it's a Woody Allen movie at this point. That's probably part of the problem. <laughs> but um, it's a shame that she hasn't won for any of those like uh, Pedro Moldovar movies she's been nominated, including even the one we're going to talk about tonight. Yeah, I've never seen Vicky Cristina Barcelona, and I think you already just gave the reason why I haven't bothered. Uh, but yeah, I absolutely agree uh, that unfortunately that's the only thing that she's really gotten a whole lot of acclaim for. She has this real naturalism to her performances in some of these like Spanish language movies where she could just be like tossed in as like, oh, she's like gorgeous and immaculate as an actress. But like when she actually gets to be a natural person, you see so much of like, oh, there's a lot more like complexity to her as a person and her ability to like portray the fact that like just because she's pretty doesn't mean that she's actually not a real depthful person with problems and familial strifes and relationship struggles, all these other things. Oh yeah, absolutely. No, she, the thing is it's, it's kind of, fascinating with her like she definitely like i said earlier like she feels like two different actresses depending on what language uh they're using her for like where the film is being made or what kind of production it is uh she feels like she's just this old sort of soulful starlet in you know the movies of her native tongue but then when you get her in these movies and and i think you kind of alluded to and i think unfortunately it is the case uh she's utilized more for her looks than anything else you know, it just goes to show what sort of American audiences want out of their female actress. Right, yeah, that there's a bit more underneath the surface, and we're just like, no, surface, please. Just all surface. That's, that's all we give a shit about. Put you in Zoolander 2. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God, you're good looking. Well, I can actually act. Yeah, we don't care. We don't care. Yeah, I don't care about that. Go, go do something sexy. It's fucking ridiculous. Right, and uh, she can, you know, be sexy while having a lot more depth to herself sure. as a character, as we'll talk about tonight, where uh, the movies we picked at the end of our previous episode were uh, your good pick, Evolver, as directed by Pedro Moldovar, uh, who she's collaborated with several times, and then the bad pick that I ended up choosing was the uh, Ridley Scott film The Counselor, which she is part of a big ensemble cast. A lot to talk about with both those, so let's go ahead and get started with Evolver. Mogollón. ¿Estás enfadada? No. Hay gente que dice que la ha visto. ¿La has visto tú? Mamá, hay algo que quieres que yo haga, ¿no? Cortarme el pelo. No deberíamos llamar a la tía para decirle que vamos. Hola. Hola. ¿Estás con alguien? No. Agustina tiene cáncer. Es muy doloroso que una hija no quiera a su madre. Con 
la frente marchita, la nieve del tiempo latearon mi ser. So Volver uh, came out March 17th, 2006, and by the way, the title translated to English is To Return, which is an appropriate title, given uh, this movie from Pedro Almodovar. Um, it's fascinating because like a, any Pedro Almodovar movie, uh, there's a lot of twists and turns that happen. It switches genres on a dime uh, to some degree. Yeah. <laughs> Just, I mean, I, I, look, I, you know, I, not to cut you off, but I went in kind of blind on this. I've heard right. of the movie. I heard it was pretty well received, but I didn't know much about it. I didn't even really read any of the, the brief synopsis, like on IMDb or Voodoo, because I'm like, I, have, I, I just want to go in cold. So it, the way it started, I'm like, okay, well, okay, this is gonna be like a coming of age, and you know, they they learn how to, you know, be independent through each other or whatever it is. And then Paco comes on screen, and I'm like, okay, what is happening here? <laughs> Just from there, it's like every 20 minutes, I'm like, wait, what the fuck? <laughs> like, it yes. was just, it was wild. Right, like, most of what I knew going into this was just, like, the historical aspect of, like I mentioned, this was the movie where she was nominated for Best Actress, and it was the first time a Spanish woman had ever been nominated. This is around the time I started getting into the Oscars, to some degree. So I was aware of that, and I was aware of just Pedro Almodovar in general. I didn't really get more into his movies until uh, around, like, a couple years ago, we covered Spanish films, and we covered uh, his movie, The Skin I Live In. Uh, so I decided to like go back and watch some of his um, older movies I hadn't seen before, and so I was at least prepared for all the fact that like he does movies that take weird twists and turns all over the place. But uh, you mentioned you hadn't seen it before either, and you uh, picked it. So uh, what were your overall thoughts on Valford? I mean, I look again the first say fifteen minutes or so. I, I'm like, oh, I don't know if this is going to be a movie for me. Like I, I really don't. Um, it just didn't seem like it's something that normally I, I would get into or be up my alley. Um, but then I got kind of like hooked in by just sort of the dynamic between not even the daughter, which is great, but between um, Augustine and the other characters. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Like, I, I this is there's just something there that kind of hooked me a little bit. And then, like I said, once the Paco stuff happened, I'm like, oh, what the fuck is happening here? Like, this is gross. I feel weird. But it was just, like I said, it just keeps going. And another reveal, another twist, another reveal, another twist. Fucking just amazing acting and lighting in this movie, especially. Uh, the light reflected in, in the character's eyes, particularly Penelope Cruz and uh, the one who plays her mother. I mean, it's just, it adds a whole other sort of layer of character to them. But yeah, I, I really ended up really thoroughly enjoying it. Um, it's not necessarily my favorite, uh, you know, movie that we've done for the show or anything like that. But it, as far as a surprise film, I mean, this is right up there with, you know, some of the best of them. I really, super solid. Surprise as in like movies you had not seen before and just kind of picked on a whim. Yeah, the, yeah, right. Exactly. Cover. Right, yeah. Yeah, right. like the, I could think of like another one, like the Barbara Streisand one, or the, the, like, I can't even remember the name of it, the one we just did with Barbara Streisand, or you know, even Moonlight or something. Movies I hadn't seen, kind of went in cold and like walked out really enjoying. That that movie, by the way, was What's a up, What's Up Duck. 
Yeah, yeah what's up, Doc? Yes. Yeah. Right. Uh, but yeah, with this one, um, this is my favorite Almodovar movie I've seen so far. I think it's because, like, all these twists and turns, it, it manages to work because the characters are so consistent. Like, that's what I love about his movies is that he tends to, like, create these movies, particularly about women, who are just like, okay, you're in the middle of 15 horrible things that are going on all around you, but you have to still keep your life together. And I love the fact that, like, Penelope Cruz embodies that in this movie, where, like, as you mentioned at the start of this, it's like, oh, she's already dealing with a lot with, like, her parents had died in a fire, and she's trying to help up with, like, her sister, and then, you know, their friend Augustine, as you mentioned, who has, like, some, like, you know, fatal disease, like a cancer of some sort, and also, like, an older aunt that she's, Penelope Cruz is trying to take care of, who's, like, slowly losing her faculties, and there's, so she's already got so much on her plate, and then her douchebag of a husband tries to sexually assault her young daughter, and her young daughter kills him out of self-defense, and she has to, like, hide this body in this freezer, and then when she hides it in the freezer of, like, this old place she used to work for at this restaurant, a film crew comes by saying, like, oh, hey, can we, like, come here to, like, eat lunch every day? It's like, ah, uh, sure, I can run this place now because the owner is left. I just love the weird stream of consciousness that we have to go with, and, like, we just kind of abandon the murder plot for a bit, but in a way that works, because it keeps coming back into the story. But it's also just kind of like a thing that, you know, is in the back and you get emo emotionally invested, like, in their actual character stuff. So when the body comes back, you're like, oh, wait, yeah, the body. <laughs> what are they yeah, going to yeah. do about that? <laughs> oh, yeah. She, and that's a fucking hell of a couple hours for her. You know, she comes home, finds out her daughter was sexually assaulted by her husband and she killed him. And as she's cleaning it up, oh, Augustine's on the phone. You have to answer. Yeah, hey, your Aunt Paula died and I have cancer. You're like, oh, my God, what the <laughs> Fuck. Like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's just like I said, there's so much to it and it just keeps coming. And she'll get these moments of sort of, you know, as you see in the movie where she's having a good time and she's singing and they're having these huge parties and she's making money and everybody's coming and it's a success. And then the daughter will realize, you know, that the body's buried in the freezer and the thing and she doesn't want to be there anymore. I was like, shit, well, now I got to, you know, it's just, it's, the other shoe is constantly ready to drop on, uh, on the Penelope Cruz character. And it's, that's kind of, I think, what really ultimately hooks you into this movie. Right, yeah. The, but at the same time, because you're so invested in how much, like, the, like the success, like, um, in theory, like, I shouldn't give a single shit about, like, oh my god, they're running the restaurant, great, that's awesome. What about the body in the freezer? But it doesn't matter, because you're so invested, just like, you know what, I want this little ragtag group to get this restaurant going. <laughs> I hope this works out. I don't, the, the, whatever, the body in the freezer's fine. We can deal with that later. <laughs> I just, I love how all Moldovar manages to, like, once again, weave that in a weird stream of consciousness way. And then at the same time, is able to even introduce things that, once again, when you hear them, it's just like, wait, are we adding something else to this movie? Another spinning plate to this routine of the mother, um, the Irene character played by Carmen Mora, who comes back and basically, like, for the for most of her screen time is implied to be a ghost of some sort. Which I love that scene where it's revealed, where the one sister um, goes into the aunt's house to, like, look around for stuff, and then sees someone coming down the stairs... And it's like her fucking mom is there and she runs yeah, away was... in terror. It's a great just horror sequence in the middle of this movie. Yeah, she's been dead for four years. Right. It's great. And yeah, I love that the way they do it. The, you know, they imply literally kind of up until the final 10, 15 minutes of the movie that she's a ghost. And it's just through 
it's not a huge reveal that she's not a ghost anymore. It's literally just through conversation. You figure it out. Right. And I, I, and it's helped by the fact that like so many people around that neighborhood where the aunt used to live are so superstitious. Mm-hmm. And they talk about like, Oh, we heard something over there. We think it's probably like the ghost of your mother is taking care of your aunts and stuff like that. I love that element too, that it feels like it's just like this cultural element that's just there that kind of helps to weave in the idea of like, Oh, of course a ghost can exist. And, it's kind of like a genre thing. It almost feels like it's like a ghost comedy after that point where like she has the ghost of her mother stay at her apartment and pretend to be like her Russian, like uh, confidant. She just took in off the street and is just like, Oh, Hey, you know, you can wash hair or whatever. And you would think like, Oh, why would a ghost be able to wash hair? Is it corporeal? All these logic questions you could ask, but it's like the movie just exists in this universe where it's like, sure, that makes sense. And then the ending happens and makes all the sense out of it. But when you're watching it and you're might potentially question some of these things, you're like, ah, who cares? It's kind of fun. Ghost mom. Yeah. I didn't give a shit. I, I wasn't like, wait a minute. If she was going to hug her, she would have went right through her. Or why isn't she rotting if she's a zombie? I hope Pedro Moldenberg got fired for this blunder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I didn't give a fuck. You just go with it. It's got a certain level of charm and, you know, whimsy to it. Where Even the point where, like you said, the one daughter sees her coming down the stairs and runs away in terror. She's scared. And then finally she leaves and gets to her destination and her mom's hiding in the trunk. <laughs> you know, she's like, let me out. She's like, you're dead. Yeah, whatever. That's fine. Just let me out of the trunk. <laughs> like, it's, 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 yeah, it's really sort of done in a very sweet way. I mean, of course, the whole fart scene is very cute. It's very sweet. You know, or she follows the smell of farts around the house and the mom's under the bed laughing about it and stuff. Like, it's very, very cute. The whole time you're kind of like, well, I wonder why she's here. I wonder why she's here. You think most of it might have to do with. Uh, Sola, the the sister she's staying with. But when the ultimate reveal comes to why her and the Penelope Cruz character sort of stopped speaking and what happened to her, I mean, I, I kid you not, I'm watching it and I'm like, okay, I think it's almost over. All right, I'm just curious. My jaw just dropped. Like, oh my yeah. God, I cannot believe they're doing this. Uh, I mean, not in a bad way. It, it totally fits with the story. It makes all the sense in the world, but it was just devastating. Yep. It's definitely a thing where, like, when I watch this, like, from the, like, very early on that scene, they reveal, like, the actual parentage. We might as well, like, we're, this is a 2006 movie. We're going to spoil it. We might as well just, like, talk about it. But Yeah, fuck it. Yeah, if you haven't seen this movie, see it. We both love it. It's great. See it, for sure. But um, that, from the bit where she says, like, oh, yeah, I knew that, like, my uh, granddaughter is actually uh, the product of you being raped by my husband, your father. So she's both your daughter and your sister. Like, I had to pause and, like, walk around for a bit. Like, this is really heavy to put in. Like, we're, like, eight minutes away from the movie ending. <laughs> I legitimately did the same thing. My jaw dropped. I paused and stood up and just walked out into the hallway. I'm like, wait a minute, what? It's it's a lot to lay on there, but what I like also is the fact that it doesn't feel like it's throwing this out in, like, too, like, heavy, like, in a way that would be, like, too overtly, like, melodramatic, because obviously there's a lot of this that is melodrama, like Peter Mulvar likes to do, but I like the fact that it's such a casual conversation that feels just like, we're getting this out. We have been off and on with each other for, like, decades, and even, like, this is after most of the ghost stuff, Penelope Cruz is not aware that her mother is there. She's being hidden for a reason, as it 
ultimately be like a lot of the stuff comes out about the the fact of like their their father's philandering with Augustine's mother and all the circumstances of that and the fact that she, uh, the mother character is not actually a ghost but has like faked her death basically and ended up like hiding away with the aunt character for this long and that's how the aunt was able to survive for so long even after she started losing her faculties and stuff like that I just love the fact that all that comes together and in a worse movie it would just feel like oh this is all just to make sense of everything but it's all rooted in these characters having these like fractured relationships and the two of them coming together at this point in a way that feels very sweet and earnest and doesn't end with like a big crescendo of like our entire relationship is fixed it's just like no this is a crucial step and we have to keep working on this from there Right, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's the one thing you can say about this movie, and most of Aldemar's movies, but he keeps the story so tight and just moving along and just so expertly connected, even when these sort of, he throws these twists or things at you, and like you said, even in the last eight minutes of the movie, it instantly takes you back to, you know, 30, 40, 50 minutes before, and you're like, oh, I understand that part now, and oh, I get it. It, it never, it, this movie never feels like it makes a decision just to make one. It, it feels like everything is done for a very meticulous reason to tell this story. There doesn't feel like there's a really a wasted beat. Right, and I, I think it's so beautifully handled with the way, just on like a filmmaking level, you mentioned like some of the lighting stuff, like particularly near the end as like the old aunt's place that Augustine basically is implied is going to die in because she's so close to death at the by the end of the movie, becomes like this haunted, shadowy place, but not in like an awful gothic way, just like in a beautiful, ennui, mixed bag, bittersweet kind of way of embracing you know, that end of the life at that point. The fact that she, the mother character doesn't even reveal to Augustine that she is alive, that she still keeps up the ghost charade because Augustine is so much more of like uh, supernaturally believing and all that other stuff. Yeah. I just love... It's also her way to pay penance for murdering Augustine's mother. Right. That's true. Yeah, but, but, she could, but she could have just said, just like, oh, guess what? No, I'm not a ghost. I made sure that your mother died. <laughs> you piece of shit. Yeah, right. She could have revealed true. all that. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> piece of shit. Enjoy the afterlife. <laughs> By the way, because I was faking it, there might not be a real motherfucker. Yeah, yeah, anyway, good night. Me. Have a good night. <laughs> Dude, fuck you. I gave you triple the dose. I can't be stopped. <laughs> just like oh man this had a really dark ending i didn't expect yes. this jesus christ i read a serial killer <laughs> but i just i i love the way that he does that stuff or even like when everything's very brightly lit there still is like a lot of emphasis on red in particular like when she's cleaning up the body of paco at the beginning and how so much the emphasis is like on like the um paper towels turning red or the like Right prominently as she's throwing away everything in the trash can. Like, he loves using primary colors in all his movies. And this one in particular just emphasizes on that for, like, the horror of cleaning up that blood. But also even the beauty of, like, uh, Penelope Cruz's dress when she does, like, the big singing sequence. Which, admittingly, very clear she's lip-syncing. But by the, when she's actually... <laughs> But when she's actually doing the big musical performance, like Penelope Cruz is so good an actress that like few people can lip sync as well as she can in that sequence. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, I agree. Well, I, there's no quite. I I fully believe that she was probably actually singing, and then they dubbed it over um, mm -hmm. because the way her mouth was moving, or even her throat, the inflections in her cheeks. Yeah, it, clearly, yes, she's dubbed. But it was one of the better sort of lip-syncing dubs I've, I've seen in film, uh, you know, in a long time. And it helps also that, like, that whole sequence, like, you're not really so focused on that as much as, like, the mother in the car 
yep. looking at her daughter having this big success and like tearing up, but then disappearing for a bit. And the way that Penelope Cruz interprets that is almost like, a, oh, I saw my mother here briefly. Like it's almost like this kind of flash thing to show that, like, oh, I see her in some way being proud of me. And I really love this moment. It's a really, once again, really sweet moment, even though at the same time there's the actual context of it that you're aware of and some of these things that feel kind of false in worse hands. All Moldavar just makes it all work beautifully. It's just like this sincere, earnest story. Well, that and the giant watery tears that are popping out of her eyes, I mean, just sucks you in 100%. You're, you're more, you know, sort of entranced by the whole emotion of the thing. And because that's one thing. Man, Penelope Cruz, can she fucking cry believably or what? Good God. Every time she cries in this movie, which there's a fair amount, uh, you're like, you feel gutted. So yeah. good. Particularly when she finds out her mother has been here this whole time. That whole or when, sequence. Or when Dirty Paco's jacking off. Yeah. And she's just silently sitting there crying, which you're like, oh, God. Fuck that guy. I Paco, worst villain of the year. <laughs> Worst villain of the year from the 2006 film. Um, I do also like the fact that this is really so much a story about women that, like, the male characters are so incidental. There's, like, Paco, who gets killed off fairly early on, and there's, like, a couple of other male characters who have a couple lines, maybe. But it's mostly just, like, this small, knit group of, like, this female, like, family unit that I really love. Even, like, down to her friend who's, like, a sex worker. Who helps her out with burying the the freezer with the body and everything in it? Who's just like, look, I'm not gonna ask any questions, but I'm technically complicit in whatever you want me to do here. I just don't want to know what it is. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, you have to, and then you really you only get the one, maybe like sort of alluded to potential love interest. But other than that, it's a completely female driven story, and it, it's all the better for that. And what do you think sort of is shown here that isn't displayed, or at least isn't allowed to be displayed by Penelope Cruz in, like, these American productions that we've talked about? Like, what do you think is really represented here that is missing from the English language stuff? Well, they give her actual, like, fucking story arc and character development and emotions and, you know, treat her like more than just a sex object. She's a fucking human being. She's flawed. She's got... That's the other thing, too. Like, she's always just, like, the the romantic love interest lead, you know, the eye candy or whatever, usually. And this, she's the fucking fully, uh, you know, dimensional character. She's got flaws. She's got hang-ups. She's got issues. She's been through some shit. She's just trying to get by like everyone else. She feels like a completely believable person. Whereas, you know, in some of the other movies, and I'm sure we'll talk about later, or even, you know, other roles we've seen her in, where her one flaw is that she gets, you know, she might get her outfit dirty. Sahara, Sahara, Sahara. But in this, she's a fully developed character, and it, she clearly has the ability to do that. It's just that she never really gets the chance. Yeah, I also think it helps that Moldavar is so, like, respectful of, like, women being actual, like, characters in terms of, like, what you mentioned. Like, she isn't just someone who's like, oh, I'm so concerned about my looks or whatever she is a woman who has to deal with like so much all the women have to deal with like so much like genuine human problems that like usually would be given to just like a male character as opposed to like um just the way that Penelope Cruz is to juggle all this stuff it feels so much more like no she's actually a person who has like strength and some ability to keep going but it's not also 
a certain character who's like represented as like, oh, I'm totally the best person in the world either. She's got like you mentioned, she these hangups that are clearly there. Like her her daughter can tell like, oh, she's guarded about certain things about her past. She doesn't want to reveal much about what happened in the past. She doesn't want to like face some of the things that happened to her. She wants to keep moving forward without facing what happened previously to her and coming to terms with it. I just it's like you said, she has so much more development and like a dimension here that makes her like a, a real human person in a way that I think is also helped just by like, she's able to deal with like these Spanish cultural things, like how much respect is paid to death. And like, even how the opening bit is all about like, Oh no, we have this cultural thing of, we have to clean the tombstone all the time. We have to come here and make sure that our parents plot looks immaculate because we want to respect like the fact that they've died and that they can still see this and can still be around to some extent. I, I love just those things that are feel not like, Oh, we have to over explain this to the audience. We're just like, this is just a casual part of our lives that we have to do every day. Right. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, you know, the, the thing about it is, too, it's done so expertly, like we both already mentioned, that in the middle of this, he plucks down a ghost story and then an incest rape story and all this stuff. And it it, it never goes too fantastical, even with the ghost story. You never feel like this, oh, this is so far-fetched. It's because the characters are so fucking grounded and the performances are so grounded that you're just totally along for it. Nothing's over the top at all in this movie really uh maybe some of the situations and and sort of things that happen are a little crazy but it's just such a beautifully grounded really sort of sweetly and sharply told story well that's something good final thought time unless you have anything to add uh 0.5 out of 5 worst movie of the year <laughs> terrible awful terrible um no, I, I love it too. I think it's a great movie. I think it's definitely um, my like I said. I think it's my favorite Almodovar movie, though I haven't seen all of his stuff. It, it encourages me to see even more because um, like this one is right there with like all about my mother and some of these other things that uh, uh, he's done. And um, Penelope Cruz is obviously phenomenal. I get why she was able to break that barrier, a barrier that should have been broken long before she did in two thousand six of being the first Spanish actress nominated. Uh, but I can see why she broke out and was able to get that nomination and really able to continue from there and become such a successful actress. Uh, this is definitely a phenomenal film that, you know, if you're apprehensive about watching foreign films, uh, this one is definitely uh, one worth examining that bias and, you know, breaking through and watching. We both definitely recommend it. But it's time we get to our bad feature, The Counselor. Life is being in bed with you. Everything else is just waiting. Will you? Yes, I will. <laughs> I intend to love you until I die. Me first. Counselor! My back's against the wall, man. Money problems are serious problems. I will set it up. 625 kilos. We're probably looking at 20 million. I know why I'm in it. Do you? It's a nice ring. Want to know how much it's worth? What do you think I should do? How bad is it? We're all done here. It's too late. I can vanish in a heartbeat. Can you? You are the world you have created. And when you cease to exist, this world that you have created will also cease to exist. So The Counselor came out October 25th, 2013 from director Ridley Scott, who, Adam, this is somehow the first Ridley Scott movie we've covered. 
I know, that's crazy. 200 fucking episodes of the show. We've almost covered him as a topic a couple times. We we definitely need to do that around the time of that fucking Napoleon movie, when that comes out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Say. Definitely, definitely. Which, which looks bizarre. But yeah, this is a more recent film of his, uh, which is written by Cormac McCarthy, not based on a novel by him, but an original screenplay from him, the first theatrical one, at least. He'd done a couple teleplays before this. And... Um, Basically, it's a story about, like, this lawyer, the titular character, who is played by Michael Fassbender, called the counselor this whole time, dealing with, like, a bunch of, like, stuff with, like, a Mexican drug cartel, and a deal that goes wrong, and everything falling apart, and all the characters he interacts with from there. Fairly simple as a story on a basic, like, one-sentence level, but uh, given it's Cormac McCarthy, um, it's told to you in a lot of flowery monologues about the nature of existence in life. And uh, I remember when this came out, people saying, like, oh, it's such pretentious bullshit, I hated it, it was awful. And I didn't see it at the time, and now I have seen it. And um, it's so fascinating that this fucking movie exists. Because it feels so, like, how the fuck did Ridley Scott get $25 million even to make this movie? (laughs) I have no idea. You know, and this fucking cast, too, is kind of insane. You know, like you said, you got Michael Fassbender, but then obviously we got the woman of the hour, Penelope Cruz, as his fiance. You got Brad Pitt. You got Javier Bardem. You got Cameron you know, Diaz. Cameron Diaz. It's just, it's it's crazy. It's a crazy cast. But man, do I not give a shit about most of this? I don't think this movie is pretentious. I I really don't. I I wouldn't say that. But it's trying so hard to be slick and cool the, the, even just with the car sex scene and and the sort of fucking dialogue about women and uh, you know it's just it's trying so hard to be like a dude's cool movie and it really just kind of fails it, it just i mean it's a bore fest and and to go to what we were sort of talking about with the problem with penelope cruz in america this movie is a very good sort of showcase of that as well because she literally is just the fiance that the movie opens up with her talking dirty to Michael Fassbender in bed. And that's pretty much all you get out of her. Yeah. I would definitely say that it's a, it's a good example of a bad use of Penelope Cruz in terms of, she is kind of a cipher in this movie. Like the, her role, she has maybe four or five scenes and the ultimate reasoning for why she's there by the end of the movie. Um, it's definitely not the best use of her as an actress. That being said, I kind of agreed with you um, about it being like, oh, this is just kind of like a pretentious dudes movie. It feels almost more like a Tony Scott movie as opposed to a Ridley Scott movie. And this is around the time Tony Scott passed away. I completely But I will say, that's why I felt the first half of the movie. And then by the end of the movie, I feel like it's more of like a condemnation and satire of a lot of those movies. I think particularly... Around the time of, like, the most infamous bit of this movie that I'd heard about involving Cameron Diaz, Javier Bardem, and a car, I it, it came to the realization, like, I think Cormac McCarthy is more trying to make a movie that, in worser hands, would be about, like, oh, these guys doing all this horrible shit, and then they die in, like, an awesome blaze of glory by the end of it. Uh, as opposed to this movie, I feel, by the end of it, becomes more of, like, oh, no, all these guys have no idea what the fuck they're talking about, and they're morons, they end up getting killed by the one person who can kind of, like, manipulate things from behind the scenes. In a way that I feel doesn't make it, like, a great movie, but I think makes it 
a bit better of a movie than it was given credit for when it came out. Oh, yeah. No, I don't think this is like the worst movie ever. I, I just found it, like I said, to be sort of boring. And, and you know, you might be right. There might be that sort of tonal shift in the second half. But I was already just so like mentally just not with this movie. It, it just, the, you know, when my favorite thing in the movie is Brad Pitt's wardrobe. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm like, oh, man, he looks sharp as fuck. And, and it's just, you know, the thing is, too. And I, I hate to begrudge anybody, and we've talked about her elsewhere and things like that, but Cameron Diaz was not the right choice for that character. Cameron Diaz trying to play a heavy comes across so forced and phony to me. And the fact that I think if they say she's Argentinian and her accent is, she'll have it one sentence and then it's gone the next. It's just, well, it's a really lousy performance. There's a very interesting backstory to that. Like, when I was watching this movie with the Cameron Diaz performance, I was fascinated because, like you mentioned, they mentioned she's from, like, Barbados, I believe. As oh, that might be, yeah, yeah. Right, right. They, they mentioned that, that she's from Barbados, but she's not really doing a Barbados accent. But also, her voice does sound weird in a way where I'm like, there's a weird, almost a, like, otherworldly quality to oh, her voice. that makes. That's the thing, is that she originally made this movie, and on set, her dialogue was recorded with a thick Barbados accent. And then they test-screened it and said, oh, this is terrible. So her entire performance is ADR'd. <laughs> All of it. Oh, that makes so much sense. I really want to hear what the, what the accent sounded like, though. I'm sure it's 100% authentic and not at all the yep. terrible choice that they shouldn't have done from the first place. Right. Um, sure. Right. So in that way, like, I think it would be come off as more of a miscasting to me if that was more the case. But I think, weirdly, the ADR kind of helps because it makes her feel like she is this otherworldly character who is so above everybody else to the point where, like, she delivers her dialogue so pronounced in a way that almost feels like, oh, no, she is totally in control. And everyone else is just like 10 steps behind her. I think if she had done it in the original Barbados accent, it would become much more distracting. <laughs> I mean, yeah, undoubtedly. I still don't think it would have been a good performance either way, though. No. Just, it didn't work. It just didn't work for me at all. Yeah. Like, and also, th- this was this is not too long before. Like, I think the next year she does a couple movies and she stops acting entirely. And she hasn't yeah, acted anything like, since 2014 or so. Yeah, I think her last movie was like, major movie was like, that she was the star was either like bad teacher or sex tape or one of those. There's like sex tape, the other woman. And then the last movie she was in at all was the Annie movie starring Kovanzane Wallace. (laughs) So she's not been anything since. Uh, But I think that also kind of helps with like some of these other characters were like Javier Bardem with his fascinating attire and hairdo and everything. He fucking, dude, he steals the movie. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, he absolutely 100% steals the movie. The hairdo, the clothing choices, the the even more of a tan, like it's clearly a, even a spray-on tan on Javier Bardem. Either that or he's wearing veneers because his teeth are so goddamn white. Uh, yeah, and just the way, how he thinks he's so fucking cool and hip and smart. And he has pet cheetahs. <laughs> he has pet cheetahs. And yet you can tell, like, he just he's full of shit, man. He has no idea what he's talking about. Uh, but it just his sort of gusto to it just really, it's, yeah, he absolutely 100% steals the film. Yeah, I think, honestly, like, even with, like, some of the issues I have with Diaz, I don't think, like, the 
I think most of the cast is firing on all cylinders. My biggest problem is the titular of, like, Michael Fassbender as the counselor. I think he's just given this role that's so much of a cipher role. And this was around the time where, like, after he popped his Magneto, and it was like, oh, we have to make him, like, a lead. And he has this weird quality where he can, like, so many people want to make him a star, and he has so many tendencies to make him feel more like a character actor, but he doesn't quite know where he stands, and I think that's part of why he hasn't acted in a while, honestly, is he kept getting sidelined to, like, either small character parts or lead roles, neither of which quite worked for him, especially in big Hollywood movies. And I think here, he's so just, like, a weird audience surrogate. He's just like, oh, yeah, is this the situation that's going on here down in Mexico? Yes, okay, okay. All right, well, I guess this is all falling apart then. Okay, I guess, uh, I guess well, I'm fucked, isn't it? <laughs> Michael Fassbender can do any accent other than American. I mean, he's really good at doing British accents, obviously, you know, Irish, because he is Irish. When he does the fake German accent and Large Bastards, it's really solid. Uh, just, he he can't inflect in his voice when he's doing an American accent. So it just comes across very wood all the time. And so enunciated, because he's trying so hard to cover it up. And even then, there are several scenes in this movie where you hear the Irish come out. I like Michael Fassbender a lot. I think Michael Fassbender works best when he's bouncing off someone of equal caliber or higher in, in like a in the two piece, where it's him and somebody else, where it's not. Or he's part of like an focus. ensemble as opposed to the yeah, main. Yeah, it works really well there. Yep, I agree. Uh, it's just, yeah, I, he was sort of because as much as I didn't like Cameron Diaz in this movie, there was still a lot of choices being made there. Um. Yeah, Fassbender, he's just, he's dull. It's just ultimately a very dull, boring performance. And it's, you know, if the lead of your movie and the, the character that the movie's fucking named after, if you really don't give a shit about what's happening to them in the story just because of the sort of, the way it's being performed, then you gotta figure it out. You gotta figure something else out. Like, go back to the drawing board or tell him to just be, why couldn't he just be Irish? Because the thing is, like, you mentioned the whole thing, like, oh, him bouncing off somebody. I think it's a problem, like, this character is so much more of, like, he is a bouncing board for other actors to do something with. Like, any of the scenes he has, like, with Brad Pitt or Javier Bardem or Cameron Diaz, they're all making the choices in the scene as opposed to Fassbender not being able to, like, even... Like, fucking Toby Keppel shows up with this terrible southern accent we've made fun of many times, and that's still more of a choice than Fassbender reacting, just like, oh, he's a former client. Why Why do they have him do those accents? Why has Toby Keppel always got this horrible, stupid southern accent? <laughs> it's all he knows how to do when he doesn't have a mocap suit on. <laughs> but I've seen him in other movies where he just talks in his normal voice, and it's fine. Like, wh- why this stupid, awful, hi hi do there, friend? You're like, what the? Nobody talks like that. It's so over the top and oaky. Like, get the fuck out of here, dude. It's ridiculous. I I hate it. Right. It, but it's still more of a choice, once again, than Fassbender, who is just giving you, like, nothing at all. But I think you like... might have a point there. I don't, maybe that was the whole intention. Mm-hmm. You know, to where he was sort of the surrogate for all these other characters to bounce off of and go real nuts with. That I think maybe the intention was for him to be the most the one to ground this story that way they could populate it with just these over the top weird fucking ragtag group of people you might be on that's probably the case uh i mean at least i would hope so but but we're still also at like such a weird distance from him because they only call him the counselor 
Yeah, he doesn't even get a name. Right. When you right. do that, it's usually a thing like, oh, we got to keep this person mysterious as opposed to, no, we know everything about this guy. There's not a lot there. <laughs> we're, no, there's we're, a whole nothing there. Like, I, I, I have my fiance, Penelope Cruz, and I'm a lawyer. <laughs> That's... And I'm trying to make a lot of money for fucking some reason, even though I live in a gorgeous palace. Right. Like, it doesn't right. make like, any, like, they don't even give him a reason why he's getting involved. Just because he's going to make more money. That's literally it. Right, most of, like, the interesting stuff that happens, like, later on, it's just more on the thematic level it works for me, like, when he talks to Ruben Blades as Hefe. My favorite scene of this whole movie is yes, when he I calls agree. that dude up about just, like, oh, hey, so, hey, can you help me get this situation? My what, my fiancé's been kidnapped, what am I going to do? And he just, like, on the other end, Ruben Blades just sits down and is just like, look, here's the thing, um, you gotta just accept what your fate is, because uh, everything's ruined. Everything's crumbling apart around you. There's no hope for you. All the deeds that made this happen were made ages ago. There's no way you could have really prevented any of this from happening within, like, the last couple years. You uh, set this up long ago, and you're kind of fucked. Uh, have a good day. And then he hangs up the phone. Just, like, the coldest monologue. And I think, like, that's what works for me with, like, even Ridley Scott's direction on this movie. It, like, in a... Tony Scott movie, this would have been so overstylized in a bizarre, over-the-top way that would have almost, like, glamorized what's going on here. But I think Ridley Scott just looks at it from a more cold, calculated place. So when, by the end of this movie, the whole thing is just like, oh, no, every- these guys all just have set themselves up for doom. Everything is, like, so clinical, the way he established all that. Like, the the modus operandi for this movie is so beautifully set up with that whole sequence where those two mysterious folks in the truck are going around, like, set up the thin wire thing to behead the motorcycle guy. That's what this whole movie is, just like a cold, calculated setup for horrible murder to happen. <laughs> but that, but I, but that's the more fascinating stuff that they do in the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I like the sort of slow, methodical, you know, you're watching this guy set up this whole thing, and then you get a non-speaking, you know, scene with like him and Richard Brake driving the truck and then they're pulling over and fighting the cops and and then even the car chase scene with Javier Bardem. Like that stuff I really kind of enjoyed. That sort of like you said, slow, methodical, brutal stuff. It's any of the dialogue other than I would say other than that final like the one you were talking about, the guy with the Hefe, which is great because he does all the talking. Like, Michael Fassbender just cries and says no and yes pretty much the whole time. It's any of the scenes where where it's like the Brad Pitt and Michael Fassbender or the Harvey Bardem and Michael Fassbender to where it almost feels like they're acting against a really piss-poor improv partner where, where they're giving him everything. And, it, you know, and then, yeah, I, I, you know, blah, 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 blah. She was on the car and she was on the car. Yes, and then she did this and this and this. Wow. God damn it, dude. Right, it's like, not so much, it's not yes ending, it's like, uh-huh. Uh, yeah, and- 100%. <laughs> now we're just repeating the last word of their sentence. Right. You know, yeah, that she fucked the car. Fucked the car. Yeah, man, Jesus, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> you mentioned that scene. We should probably go into that, because that was the infamous thing I knew about this movie. I mean, if there's- for a reason... Right. There, there's a sequence in this yeah. movie, if you're unaware, where Javier Bardem uh, tells a tale to Michael Fassbender of um, going out on a date with Cameron Diaz, and then they, uh, have, they're in his car, and she says, stop the car. She takes off her panties and then proceeds to pleasure herself on the windshield of the car. 
So, in essence, she fucks the car. And this was the thing I'd heard about with this movie. Just like, what? That happens? And in the process of actually, like, watching it in context of the movie, obviously, it's a bit jarring. It might take you out of it for a second, because that sequence happens. Unless you've seen the first ten minutes of Titan. That's true. I mean, then Titan's like, oh, this is child's play. Yeah, right, exactly. (laughs) You guys are watching Skinnabax board. (laughs) (laughs) But... What I like about that sequence is it's this very over-the-top satirical way of showing off to, like, Cameron Diaz, who, as we learn throughout by the end of the movie, is, like, the big mastermind that plots all of their dooms. Like, that feels like it's kind of, like, her version of the setup of, like, that um, one motorcycle guy being decapitated. That yeah. is her establishing to Javier Bardem just, like, look, I have fun with you and our cheetahs and our exorbitant lifestyle, but... These are all play things to me. Like, I could fuck this car in front of you, and that's all that it matters to me, and then just go back in the car and we can drive off or whatever. Michael Fassbender asks, like, well, how would you feel after that? And Bardem's like, uh, scared? <laughs> I was yeah. very worried by that, because this is a guy who earlier on had done, like, a whole monologue to Michael Fassbender, but like, man, ladies, all they want is just, you know, the big extravagant lifestyle. You gotta make sure they're not bored. Men have so many problems to deal with ladies. They just have to make, you have to make sure they're not bored by anything. And then after that, it's just like, she terrified the fuck out of yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. He crumbles. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, but uh, to get to the Penelope Cruz of it all. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, they give her nothing to do. You, you, She gets maybe three on-camera scenes in the movie, and then the rest are like, you can hear her voice through telephone, mm-hmm. which is really shitty. Um, but then, you know, watching it, y- y- it, obviously, clearly she's pregnant in the movie. Yeah. Like, they clearly are trying to hide her pregnancy. Like, I was, I'm wondering if maybe that's part of the reason her scenes were cut so much. I wonder if she would have had more to do. I, I, I'm just, because if not, it just seems like, I mean, although I guess we sort of conceded that this happens, but it just feels like such a huge waste. Well, I think it's just a problem. Like, I don't think it's a great use of her talents necessarily, but I get why she sort of acts as, like, this cipher within the context of, like, what Cormac McCarthy has written. Because she's sort of this representation to Fassbender of, like, oh, look, this is what you have on the other side of this. This is what makes you feel superior to any of these other people around you. It's like, oh, no, I have this woman I can go back to who isn't like Cameron Diaz, who's just, like, flaunting everything whatsoever. She's a nice lady who I'm going to settle down with and have kids with. that they could have flopped? switch the actors and it would have worked better if they were to switch Cameron Diaz and Penelope Cruz. Um, it might have helped that, like, you know, Javier Bardem and her obviously actually a couple right. in real life. So that would have had an interesting other layer to it. Um, but I, I still think, like, we would have still been here sitting about, here complaining about, like, well, Cameron Diaz is kind of the cipher of a character. But I think in context of the actual story, that character is supposed to be a cipher because it's, like I said, Fastbender's just sort of representation of like, oh no, this is this other life that I have that separates me from all these like drug cartel people. I'm an upstanding citizen lawyer who is like totally separate from all this. When really it's like, oh no, you doomed her, dude. You didn't really give that much of a shit about her because ultimately you doomed her to this fate of basically like taking your place. A lot of Chekhov's guns in this movie too, though. If you know. Yes. That. Right. One Lots with of the like wire stuff. thing. Javier Bardem tells him about the whole story about the wire trap. And then for some reason, Brad Pitt tells him about a snuff movie. Yes. And then, of course, and so, both of those things end up happening. Right, which, God, the Brad Pitt, like, him getting that trap around his that fucking, fucking head. That's fucking crazy. That it's so wild. terrifying, especially, there's a director's cut version, shockingly, 
Ridley Scott released a director's cut version of his movies. (laughs) I know. Um, And I saw there's another scene after the one that we saw in the theatrical cut where they take his body out, uh, like, into an ambulance, and you get the full decapitation of Brad Pitt. And it's... It's even more like in the movie itself. It's like fucking horrifying and disturbing. Um, but right. I, I also love the way Brad Pitt even plays it in that version that we saw. Like the, that scene where like he gets it on his head, and he has like he's trying to get it out, and he has like his fingers that are being crushed, and he just has this like look of like exasperated laughter, like he just had a shitty day at the office. Just like oh boy, Woo, I can't believe the irony. This is happening to me. <laughs> well, I think that's the point too, though. Yes, that's that's like my little one. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. me too. I well, yeah, Brad, yeah, I agree. That's why you know, even joke, jokingly earlier about his outfits and stuff. But, but Brad Pitt was a very interesting character. You just didn't get enough with him. I get he's some weird middleman or whatever he is, but they didn't do anything with him other than that death scene, really. Well, I I guess it it, it probably fits in with like Cormac McCarthy, obviously, with like the stuff that's been adapted from his works, like No Country for Old Men. This is clearly a movie that got made. Because it's still riding high off, like, oh, no country for old men, though. And you got Javier Bardem coming back, and it's a Ridley Scott movie. I'm sure this is going to be, like, a big Oscar play, which is clearly wouldn't be an Oscar movie in retrospect. I think that was the, what they were trying, though. Right, exactly. That's yeah, what they were yeah. trying um, to, to aim for. But, like, when you, like, watch something like a no country for old men, that's also a movie that, like, on paper, it's like, oh, this guy steals a bunch of money, and then he runs away from, like, this guy who is the personification of death following him around trying to kill him. Like, on paper, it could just be, like, a very simple story, but that is told in, once again, the, not a very commercial way. What do you think, like, because I know we both really like that movie, what do you think separates something like that from The Counselor for you in terms of, like, that Cormac McCarthy style being adapted to the screen? Oh, well, uh, subtlety. You know, No Country for All Men, for all it is, it's still a lot more subtle than this movie. Um methodical pacing purposeful pauses purposeful you know introductions of characters purposeful reasoning and logic behind some of it it's just such a more tightly fascinating good murder mist sort of mystery film which you know it's funny you point out but there is a lot of similarities between the two like i said the counselor it feels like a lot of the movies that were coming out around this time like you had the counselor you even had like oliver stone savages you had you know just these Movies with these big casts that tried to, you know, just really be the cool new thing, probably post No Country for All Men. I think that's a very good logic behind that. Uh, it's just, and it, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work because, you know, No Country for All Men is not a story that hasn't been told before. It's just the way it was told with these, like I said, with the sort of methodical pacing of it. And it was told in a way that you hadn't really seen before. You know, this really, really quiet movie. There's not a whole lot of dialogue in No Country for All Men. Um, and it just, it really, really worked. This one, they tried to over, over explain things without really telling you anything. And it's just, it, it just feels like a cheap imitation. Where No Country for All Men, even though it wasn't completely original, still felt wholly original. I think what No Country for Old Men does so well is that the Coen brothers present a lot of things like this could be like, oh, a more traditional Coen brothers movie even, which is still outside of like the mainstream, but still more of like a Coen brothers caper where like Josh Brolin could be like the, um, you know, guy who fucks up a lot, but is still like an engaging like main character to have. 
like follow around or even like it presents like oh we could have the shootout or we could have all these other things that could get him out of the situation but ultimately it comes down to like the presence of javier bardem is this uncaring spirit that like just goes around and completely destroys any of that those kind of like movie fallacies about like the idea that brolin could get out of any of these situations like no he's not going to be able to get out of this he is death incarnate come to just make sure everything falls the fuck apart and he will not die he will keep going onward and bringing death and misery to anybody who was near Brolin in the situation versus like the counselor feels like it's a movie made by Anton Shiger <laughs> in terms of like what he would present the idea of like, Oh, here's this like simple Mexican drug cartel movie made basically by a dude who has no true feelings toward humanity whatsoever, either good or bad. It's just this like, here are these humans, they plot around and they try and exude these truths about what they think life is really like, but they all end up dying by the end of it because they are idiots. They are morons who will seal their own fates by the end of things. <laughs> That's what I find so fascinating is it feels like it's Cormac McCarthy responding to a No Country for Old Men with like, well, if we have Anton Sugar invade a regular movie... Here's basically a movie that feels like it is written and directed by Anton Sugar, which is to say cold, unfeeling, and has no kind of, like, care toward humanity whatsoever. <laughs> Does that make sense? <laughs> I mean, it's as if Anton just pitched it himself. <laughs> you fucking maniac. <laughs> no, I get what you're saying. I get what you're trying to say. Yeah, and I, I, it does make sense. Uh, and yeah, I think that's a pretty fucking accurate sort of sum up do you have any other final thoughts on this one um i mean i'll say this much i don't really hate this one i think where this guy has made far worse movies he's made far more boring movies for sure I find this one just be like this really fascinating study and once again like ridley scott as compared to like a tony scott once again, like, Tony Scott would have made this a very big, over-stylized movie. And Ridley's just like, I'm going to take something my brother would have done and just make it like I am a fucking uh, replicant or David the Android from fucking Prometheus and <laughs> Alien Covenant. Like, I'm going to make this cold, unfeeling movie that could be, like, heavily stylized, have a lot of shootouts, be over the top and silly, in a way that I could enjoy, because I love a good Tony Scott movie. But this is him doing it in the way of, like, well, this is more... Um, that kind of movie, but from the perspective of complete apathy <laughs> toward what human beings could be, which I find fascinating. Not great, not necessarily even quite good, but fascinating. I just maybe wish that the main character was a bit more interesting. <laughs> That's my biggest fault with it, because otherwise, like we mentioned, the supporting characters are interesting. I think it looks gorgeous in a lot of it. And I think by the ending, when it gets to its like, very uh, cynical, nihilistic sort of bleak note of just like well you know some people are prey and some people are uh bunnies for the prey to murder um it's you know that's just how life goes and i just gotta be a horrible predator piece of shit toward people from cameron diaz that whole final monologue i think it really sums up this movie's very dark outlook in a fascinating way that i get it not being at all commercial or even like oscar like baby to any degree um but i just find it fascinating as a movie that like would never, ever, ever, ever get made for $25 million now, no matter how many stars you put in it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely agree with pretty much everything you said. I, I don't think this is the worst really Scott film. I, I it's, it's, this would be a textbook example of me just saying, it's fine. Like, it is fine. It, it's not, 
the worst I've ever seen. It's definitely not the best I've ever seen. There's some cool decisions made in this movie. A really fun Harvey Arbor Dem. But yeah, just a really, really boring lead. And it, it's just, it doesn't reinvent the will in any way. Doesn't mean it's terrible, but it, it's, it's, it's fucking fine. Fucking fine. Endorsement from Adam Thomas. Uh, but now, Adam, it's time for a weekly segment that we do called The Double Redo, which now has theme music. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double 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 Redo. Yes, that's our bumper now for the Double Redo, which we recorded, we should mention, uh, when I was up there visiting you in Michigan when we recorded the 200th episode. So that'll be on yeah. the future episodes, just as a little reminder of, like, we were in the same room once. Yeah. Sorry if you guys hate it, but we don't care. <laughs> there's, a, there's a skip button for a reason. You can skip right. through that to the wonderful segment itself, where Adam and I uh, basically uh, talk about uh, two good and two bad movies related to the topic at hand uh, that we you know would recommend or not recommend to you all and uh we have of course adam is going up first here with uh what are your double redo picks for miss penelope cruz all right all right one of them we've covered you know on the show before i think that you're gonna find that's the case in in both my good and bad uh but it's the movie i mentioned earlier that i probably the first time i saw her uh you know if you've heard the episode you know how much i love this movie still love this movie um, I, I definitely am one of the few people I know that really like this movie this much, but it's uh, Vanilla Sky. I, I think she's absolutely just great in it. She is that quintessential dream girl that everyone wants, but she does add a lot more to it. At least they let her be quirky and sort of silly uh, as compared to just being there to look good. And I think she's really good in it. Uh, and then the other one is the movie that you think you first saw her in. I have Blow. Uh, which I love Blow. I, I know it's, you know, Johnny Depp and blah, blah, blah. But I think Blow is just a really fun drug crime movie. Uh, it, it Does it, again, does it reinvent the wheel on anything? Absolutely not. But I think it's got a great soundtrack, uh, really well done needle drops. Penelope Cruz is fantastic in it. Um, Jordi Molina is really, really good in it. Uh, sorry, Jordi Mala. Uh, he's really, really good in it. It's just, it's a super fun, I, I just think it's a fun, entertaining sort of crime gangster movie. Um, and she's great in it. She's absolutely wonderful. You go from absolutely loving her to hating her to understanding her. And, and they, so therefore, again, she has an arc in this movie, which, you know, she doesn't get in a lot of other English speaking roles of hers. Uh, for instance, my bad, I have Sahara which again we covered on the show but it, holy shit is it terrible and talk about really giving her nothing to do holy fuck so i'm not going to go too far into detail about it because you can literally listen to that episode it wasn't that long ago and then my other one i have uh probably uh one of the most unfunny movies i saw the year it came out and she's also just completely wasted in it i have uh the sasha baron cohen mark strong brothers grimsby terrible film uh gross out humor left and right really fucking immature sort of childish sex talk humor and it's just 
it just misfires on every level for me and she's just completely wasted and she it, it feels like she doesn't want to be there and that's never a good sign uh so yeah that was her mind well um i've definitely seen at least three out of uh those four i haven't seen brothers grimsby i avoided that very purposefully <laughs> did not want to bother with that particular one sahara like you mentioned we covered previously not a huge fan of that one either um, yeah, a blow is interesting. It's just sort of like, it's feels kind of like a, a quintessential, like cable movie. Like I've seen that movie, like maybe once all the way through, but I've also seen parts of that movie so many times on cable. I've seen like, especially the, any of the scenes with like Paul Rubens, I've seen many times on cable, which is a very fun supporting performance from him. Um, and then Villainous Sky, we also talked about previously, fascinating movie. I'm going to seriously say a good movie, but one that is worth study. <laughs> In terms of just what a weird anomaly that movie also is. Um, but yeah, I'll go ahead with my choices here now. Um, the two I have here are, uh, one is her very first movie, uh, Yaman Yaman, uh, which is this movie that came out in like 1992, also features Javier Bardem, long before the two of them were actually a couple. And basically, um, she plays this young woman in a relationship with this young man who is played by, speaking of which, uh, uh, Jordi Mala. Uh, who you might know from, like, Bad Boys 2, amongst other things, a, a very early role for him, as uh, the son of this big-time fashion uh, factory uh, owner who is, um, like, with this much lower-class person in Penelope Cruz um, and is trying to, like, romance her this whole time. And the mother of the Jordi Mala character is like, oh, my God, I can't have my son be with this commoner, so I'm going to hire this ham delivery guy, played by Javier Bardem, to sweep her off her feet and take her, basically. But there's all these complications where it turns out that, like, Penelope Cruz is pregnant with Jordi Mala's uh, son, and then at the same time, Javier Bardem and Penelope Cruz actually start having an attraction toward each other that grows a bit more. And it's this, like, really interesting, weird, like, comedy of manners to some degree. Like, even, uh, like, the title is um, Haman Haman, which is, like, means pig, but also is the f- feminine version means, like, a, a loner spinster woman, basically a woman without any kind of man to her uh, accompaniment in Spanish. And I think it's it's an interesting movie that's just worth it for, like, these young people at a very weird, bizarre, like, start point <laughs> that feels like, oh, this could be just, like, a love triangle movie, but it takes weird twists and turns that are bizarre. I, I find it fascinating and, like, comedic in very weird ways it feels very specific to spain as well that like some jokes are maybe lost in translation but it still is fascinating just once again to see all these very impressive actors at a very young time in their lives very interesting little film and then i have her most recent film parallel mothers which she got nominated for an oscar for another pedro Almodovar movie and i won't go too far into the specifics but basically uh this movie starts off with like she is this woman who gets pregnant um, and she ends up uh, forming a friendship with this woman who she shares um, a room in for, at the maternity ward, who's a much younger mother than Penelope Cruz, obviously, is at that point. And then um, she, they both have their babies, and they both try and have a bit of like a friendship connection. But then when uh, Penelope Cruz's uh, lover comes back to the picture and sees the baby for the first time, he's like, oh, she doesn't look like mine. She doesn't look like my kid. She's like, well, that's impossible. You're the only person I've had sex with. She's like, I don't even think she looks like you that much. And so Penelope Cruz gets a bit paranoid, gets a paternity test. As it turns out, she is not the mother of that child. 
And of course, there's certain things you could probably think of like, oh, like A to B about the other mother character. Um, and that's only the start of this movie's weird labyrinthian bizarre twists and turns, much like Volver. This movie takes so many like twists and turns. This one's a bit more of a traditional melodrama, but in a way where I was fascinated watching it the whole time. Just on pins and needles every time, like, oh, oh shit. Oh, wow. Oh, no. What's going to happen now? There's so many different, like, twist after twist that still feels, like, wonderful. And still, like, Penelope Cruz, despite it being, like, this kind of melodramatic movie, keeps the character in focus and in attention to the point where you're just, like, totally with her this whole time. Even though she makes some decisions that are like, this is going to turn out so badly. You get at the same time why she's making them. And she totally deserves that nomination she's currently uh, got and potentially you know she might have won she might have not if she does it would be a massive great surprise that'd be very <laughs> very endorsed by and if not it's just a really good performance i got a bit of attention that maybe would have deserved the win a bit more i think than whatever might have won in her place uh but for the bad i have once again two of her english language ones one of these was my alternate choice for this episode for the bad pick nine which is um, an, an adaptation of a stage musical that is very much about, like, a Federico Fellini-type director uh, who's played by Daniel Day-Lewis in the film. And he's literally shooting a movie about his life. Obviously, like, eight and a half is the Fellini movie. And then nine, get it, isn't that funny? It's a movie that where it thinks that fucking title joke is so clever. <laughs> and then from there goes on these big elaborate musical numbers about, like, Daniel Day-Lewis just being, like, the biggest like, over-the-top asshole of a director, and then all the women in his life who show up, like, Penelope Cruz plays his mistress, and Marion Cotillard is his wife, and his dead mother, played by Sophia Loren in one of her few movies of the last, like, 20 years, fucking shows up as a ghost or whatever to him at points. It's really not great. Like, when the highlight of the movie is Fergie of the Black Eyed Peas singing a song called Be Italian... Keep in mind, Fergie is not Italian to any degree, <laughs> and she plays like an Italian prostitute. When that's the highlight of the movie, you know this is a very bad movie, and is forgotten to time for good reason. Um, also because Rob Marshall can't direct musicals very well, as I've said many times here before. Uh, and then the other one I have is Murder on the Orient Express, another movie with her and Johnny Depp in it. Huge sprawling cast, an adaptation of the Agatha Christie novel that is just um, a really dull adaptation of good source material where all of the actors are just kind of there to be like, oh, I can show off for a bit of a scene. And it's not really a lot they're, like, putting into it. It's where they think, like, oh, the Agatha Christie, like, sort of dialogue can go back and forth and we can make it work. But it just, it feels so weird. Like, Penelope Cruz is one of many people that feel kind of strange in their own movie. Kind of trying to be like, oh, I can show off in this completely different murder mystery movie that I'm in. As opposed to, like, it totally congealing it all in a good way. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the way Kenneth Branagh, like, kind of plays Perot either, as compared to, like, even, uh, Albert Finney in the 1970s movie, um, and the way that he even directs this, I feel, is kind of, like, stale and dull. It's just, it's a whole boring, forgettable affair, that particular murder on the Orient Express. Well, I've seen one of these. <laughs> I have not seen either of your good ones, uh, which, you know, I, I'm very curious about both of them, especially the, the one she's nominated for. It sounds like it could be really uh, quite the film. Thrilling mystery. Ooh. But yeah, uh, uh, nine, I completely avoided. Uh, if, if history's taught us anything on this show, uh, I am not a musical guy. So even though Daniel Day-Lewis is in it, and I love Daniel Day-Lewis and a lot of that cast, no, I'm good. Missed it. Glad I did. 
And I have seen Murder on the Orient Express. And uh, I pretty much agree with everything you just said. Uh, it's, I mean, to the point to where something even as simple as uh, Perot's mustache, I hate the way it looks. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, <laughs> even something that simple, I could point out of that movie, like, yeah, they didn't even get the fucking mustache right. It's just, it's a bland movie. They're, like you said, they're trying too hard to let everybody have a chance to really shine and have it be this, like, really illustrious, fancy, period, whodunit piece. And it just kind of falls apart, uh, kind of all over the place. That's why when they announced the sequel, uh, even take away that movie's you know, controversy that it gained because of, you know, one of the stars. I was very surprised that that, that, that movie even had enough attention or to laud a sequel. Uh, I, I still can't believe it. I mean, that's the thing is that movie made a shit ton of money. Murder I, because Express. of that cast. Because yeah. of that cast. And uh, I think after this sequel, we it'll be the last of them. I don't see this one doing very well uh, for many reasons. So... Yeah, I, the only interest I had in the sequel is just the fact that apparently there's an origin story for the mustache they wrote into it mm. at the beginning. What? <laughs> just give me that whole movie, then. Just make that be the movie. <laughs> there's there's apparently a whole... Th- spoilers, I guess, or Death on the Nile, but I heard about this. Like He's a soldier in World War One. And uh, he's while he's out there in, I think it's like Belgium, um, a booby trap like destroys his like part of his face. So then the nurse suggests like, huh, I, you should probably grow a mustache over that. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> if that's true, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I don't know if it's part of the Agatha Christie text. I doubt it somehow. <laughs> I highly, highly doubt it. Anybody who's listening to this, if you got to fact check us on that, go ahead. But even if it is part of the Agatha Christie text, how dare you? <laughs> that that, that feels like something that would be done like in a thing. very late Perot novel. Just like, oh, I don't know. I'm dying. Oh, sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah, 100%. Like, you know, Agatha Christie's like second nephew half removed. Is writing the stories down. He's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He lost his face in the war, so he grew a mustache <laughs> in place of his face. <laughs> so so uh, stupid. But anyway, anyway, uh, let's repeat our titles for anybody who might not have uh, got them all down for their watch list. Adam. Sure. For my good, I had Vanilla Sky and Blow, and for my bad, I had Sahara and the Brothers Grimsby. And uh, then for my good, I had Yaman Yaman, which is J-A-M-O-N. Is how that's spelled? Uh, and Parallel Mothers. And then uh, my bad were Nine and Murder on the Orient Express. And uh, we recommend everybody submit your own double reduce to us and some of the um, socials and stuff we'll have below here. Uh, we just want to thank some people and stuff before we get to our picking for next week. Stay tuned for that. Uh, we want to thank first Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used for our show. Listen more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. We want to thank Christian Thor Lally for our artwork. Follow him at Night of Water. That's night with a K underscore of underscore water, uh, where you can find a link tree to find all his other great artwork. And uh, thank you to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash dedbpod, where for just $1, you get to do stuff like vote in polls for episodes and movies we cover. And uh, also you get to listen to uh, bonus audio stuff, uh, like, you know, in the Gap Week, 
where we didn't have a regular episode come out. We went behind the paywall and put out uh, last year's March Madness episode about best movie villains. Uh, that was a lot of fun to put out there. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of other bonus audio like that that you can hear, including this year's March Madness, where we talk about best movie sequels. We have a lot of fun people on that. That's up there right now. We also have uh, On the Edge of Relevance, where we cover modern movies that come out on, like, streaming or in theaters. Uh, like, Turning Red was the most recent edition of that. Um, and even we have the video version of our previous uh, regular episode, episode 200, where you see our mugs talking uh, about the two movies, The Omen and Dangerous Men, and there's a bunch of exclusive stuff that didn't make the audio main feed cut. That's our director, so that's our Ridley Scott edition of the episode. <laughs> yeah, buddy. So go ahead and give us your dollar. But uh, we do want to um, recommend that if you like all of our stuff to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod. And uh, also you can uh, submit feedback to us like double renew choices to our email doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com. All spelled out. And uh, for um, more of my stuff, uh, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxes at NotTheWho'sTommy. I also do some writing at uh, MarianiThomas.wordpress.com and film cred Com. And uh, I was recently on the uh, friend of the show, Ray Telsch's podcast, Have Not Seen This, where I talked about this year's Oscar nominees with uh, other friends of the show, Mel Gore and Emily Slade. Admittingly, as we're releasing this episode, uh, the Oscars would have happened. So you can just listen back to that uh, so you can find out uh, how wrong we all were, probably. Yeah, very, I bet. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> and you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Atom or Adam, that's A-T-O-M underscore O-R underscore A-D-A-M. I'm not really active on those anymore, but if you want to send me a, send me a request, I'll, I, you know, I'll prove it. And then uh, you can also find me on Letterboxd at Schwanson, that's S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O-N. And uh, for more of us in audio form, uh, please subscribe to us on platforms like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and all the other places where podcasts are released. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, the great podcast network we're on, uh, why not listen to all the other great shows on there? Or dig into our archives and our Podbean main feed, where we have like almost 200 episodes before we join Talk Film Society for you to listen to. And nothing else if you can't support the show monetarily on Patreon. The completely free way to help us out is to rate, review, or simply share the show around, because it gets us more visibility and more listeners out there. Yeah, I completely agree. And uh, we really do appreciate it very, 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 very much. Except when Christian does it. (laughs) I'm just kidding, Christian. I like that when you do it. I like when you do anything, buddy. Yes, uh, we like it, especially when we do our picking for the next yeah. episode. Uh, we should note uh, with our picking for this uh, next week, uh, usually we like to do like switch off on the quality because uh, you had the good choices and I had the bad choices this week. Um, we're not going to switch off this time because obviously there was delay in the episodes. So to keep the schedule somewhat sane, uh, we're going to go ahead and keep the original like good, bad thing we had planned for uh, this coming episode, which will be about Michael Mann, in honor of he's directing the pilot for Tokyo Vice, which will be uh, coming out around uh, on April 7th, which should be fascinating. It's the first thing he's directed in quite a bit that's come out. Um, And that does also mean that originally we were going to do mockumentaries as our next episode, because that's what the patrons voted on to be the Patreon episode of March. But we decided, you know, just to make things sane, once again, we're going to put that to the 
end of April. We apologize for all that mix-up and all that maybe a little bit of a confusion, but it's just the way to make this work and keep like the episodes relevant to the schedule that they were supposed to come out and everything. Apologies out there. Yeah. I'm sorry, but I'm sure you guys understand. Yes, I'm sure, because uh, we got the best fans out there, the edgelords, all of you. Great people. Yeah. But now we're going to do our picking at him, and uh, there's this godfather rule in mind, uh, because basically you have uh, your two good choices, pick number between one and ten for yours. I've done the same for my two bad choices for the Michael Mann episode. And uh, we have this thing called the godfather rule, where um, we were both given vetoes way back in May of last year, we only had one specific veto we could use only once for a choice where if I hear uh, your two good choices and I'm like, you know, I don't want to cover that particular movie on our episode, I can say, actually, I'm going to take the cannoli unless that choice is vetoed and we have to go with whatever other choice you had on the other side of that. And I'm the only one that can do that with a veto uh, because you used yours quite a bit ago and I still have to use mine. I have like a month now <laughs> to use it, basically. I really I have to fucking use it at some point. <laughs> Well, I mean, you don't absolutely have to. It's not like you're going to be penalized if you don't. Well, I'll lose that veto. I won't have it that's again. That's true. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's true. the thing. I have to use it or lose it, as the kids hey. say. Yes. But uh, now we're going to be doing that for Michael Mann uh, for our next episode. And I know, Adam, you're a big Michael Mann man. Is that true? I, I am a big Michael Mann man. Michael Mann is uh, my favorite man working uh, today as far as director. Uh, I absolutely love everything he's done. For the most part, uh, so I'm very curious what the bad's going to be. But yeah, I, I'm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's directed two of my top three favorite movies of all time. So I mean, yeah, uh, Michael Mann's the shit. Yeah, and also just a bit of a connection to this episode. Uh, that Ferrari movie he's supposed to finally be doing that just got recently announced. Uh, it will be co-starring Penelope Cruz. Hey, but for your two good choices, Adam. I'm going to go ahead and pick the number nine. Alrighty. At number 10, I have a movie that is very kind of unlike anything he's done. Uh, it stars an actor we've already talked about earlier. Uh, it is Last of the Mohicans starring Daniel Day-Lewis. Okay. Um, I have seen this one. It's not my favorite man, but I know you really love this one. Love it. Yes, so uh, I'm not going to take the cannoli just to give this one another chance. But uh, what was your other choice? And number one, I had Thief with James Caan. That movie is great. I that love that one. Fantastic. Yeah, great. Yes, yeah, of course. Excellent film. Yes. But now, Adam. Yeah. For my two bad choices... Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, boy. Let's go number two. Okay. Over at number one, I had a movie that got a lot of flack at the time, but also has had a lot more of a cultural appreciation since it came out. It's his most recent feature that bombed so terribly that he hasn't directed a movie in several years since then. I have the Chris Hemsworth starring thriller, black hat you know it, it, i haven't ever watched it i've heard both super positive and super negative i've never heard uh nah, it's okay so i'm very curious uh, i'm excited for that one yeah i kind of like black hat i don't love black hat 
but I kind of right. like it. Yeah. yeah, well, there you go. So I guess I have heard right down the middle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Something new. That's New doors of, eh. Every day, baby. <laughs> As the kids say, mid. Um, right. But now, uh, on the other side of things, over at number 10, I had a movie that he's disowned. And a movie that uh, is not looked fondly back on. And also just isn't that commercially available all the time. It's a movie that you have to kind of catch when it's occasionally streaming on things. I have uh, what I believe is the second film, The Keep. Yeah. Yeah. I, I... There's parts of that movie I really like. and then, But for the most part, yeah, that movie's fucking dog shit. <laughs> it's wacky. It's, 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 it's wacky. very It's bizarre. Yeah, it's I, I'll give it yeah, that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a fascinating movie I would like to talk about on the show at some point because it's so weird. Sure. Yes, but uh, yeah, so Black Hat and Last of the Mohicans, very fascinating double feature to talk about. But until next time, everybody, uh, just make sure to keep the your necks clear of any of those traps because uh, you're not going to be able to probably get out of them like me. Yeah, and use cruise control. <laughs> oh, good God. Wow. Oh, I got to I gotta, like, stop this fucking episode now. Jesus Christ. Bye.